Please be seated. So I'm sure all of you are aware of a major liturgical holiday that just passed this last week, uh, otherwise known as Groundhog Day. This is extremely, extremely important, both in the church calendar and also in our own uh, national calendar as well. I'm kidding, that's, that's not true. I'm, I'm not going to try to make that connection. Uh, however, what we did in the Storrs household is we watched uh, a wonderful movie named after this holiday starring Bill Murray called Groundhog Day. It's a great film. Did anyone else watch it this week, perchance? All right, we're the only ones, so maybe this can be a new tradition. It's not the most um, reverent film, so you, you all are just probably being more uh, holy and sanctified than, than we are. So this movie, it's very interesting. It's about this weatherman, Phil, and he goes uh, to Puxanui, Pennsylvania, Puxatani. So several people just whispered the correction to me. <laughs> Thank you. You're such a caring congregation. Thank you so much. So yes, he goes to that town that's very hard to say. And he discovers that he's reliving the same day over and over and over again. And it is Groundhog's Day. He realizes that he wakes up every day at 6 a.m., the same song is playing on the radio, and he just cannot escape out of this. Whether he falls asleep normally, whether he tries to stay up as late as he can, or even if he dies, he still wakes up the next day at 6 a.m. and has to relive that whole day all over again. And nobody else around him is aware of this, of course. It's just him. You catch him trying to convince other people of this. They think he's crazy. And then the day ends and starts all over again. Well, after getting over his initial frustration of this, of not being able to escape this time loop of sorts, uh, he figures out all these ways to make life a little more exciting for him. He memorizes patterns of bank guards, and he realizes at just what precise moment he needs to move in order to rob the bank and not be uh, caught. Then he goes and steals cars, buys fancy clothes, all this sort of stuff. Of course, none of it lasts because he wakes up the next day at 6 a.m. and has to do it all over again. He repeats conversations with various women and learns things about them so that he's able to seduce them. He steals the actual groundhog itself, and then he tries to escape with the groundhog in a truck and ends up driving over a cliff with it. Then he starts to use his time to master various skills. He learns French. He learns how to play the piano. He learns uh, how to do ice sculpting. And so you get the impression that he's repeated this day over and over again for the equivalent of several years, if not decades. As I was reading up on the history of this, the director actually wanted to create the impression that it was lasting for thousands of years. At one point, he's trying to convince one of his colleagues of his situation. And he leans over the table to her and he says, I'm, I am God. And he's like, I'm not, you know, the God, but I am a God. I am immortal. I can just live this day over and over again. Nothing can touch me. I am a God. So this raises the question for us, I thought, you know, what, what would you do if you could live out some sort of immortal life like that? What are ways that you would use this power in your own life? Well, our culture loves to dream about holding uh, amazing amounts of power like this. You see this in movies all over. Almost every X-Men movie struggles or uh, entertains this idea. But I don't think it takes Hollywood to show us uh, what it's like to have these kinds of powers and things. 
You know, we can look in Washington, D.C., we can look in Silicon Valley, or even within our own hearts, and we recognize the temptation to use clout and money for our own selfish gain. So last week, if you were here, we talked about this a little bit in regards to Jesus. We talked about the authority that he has as the Holy One of God, anointed to bring in God's kingdom. Jesus' teaching gathers crowds, and his words are able to cast out the demons. Well, this week, we're going to look at ways in which Jesus uses his authority. Does he use it for his own personal gain? Well, the, if, go ahead and open up your bulletins to uh, that gospel passage, or if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to this passage as well. And also, just as an aside, I know we're Anglicans and we, we print the, the passage in the scripture or in our bulletins every week, but what's fun about bringing the text with you, uh, bringing the Bibles with you, is you can kind of see how this fits with passages that we've been reading and places that we'll go. Because one of the things that I love about this passage is that it's actually the same day as the previous passage. So Jesus leaves the synagogue after casting out the demon, and kind of exhausted from that, kind of tired from that, they go to the home of Simon's house. So they go to Simon's house, and there they discover that Simon's mother-in-law is actually sick with a fever. And we don't know the nature of this. We don't know the, the extent of the fever. We don't know how strong it is. But keep in mind, fevers in the ancient world are a serious business. You don't know if this is going to be the end of you or not. You don't know if this is just a 24-hour bug or if this is actually going to be completely debilitating. It's not like you can just pop a couple of Tylenol or pour yourself a cup of coffee and get on with the day. In the ancient world, there's no uh, guarantee that you're going to recover from this kind of thing. And Jesus heals her. And he does it very simply, very elegantly, very calmly. He simply lifts her by the hand and she's healed. No elaborate words, no incantations or anything like that. He simply lifts her by the hand. He's got a clarity and a power about him. This reminds me of when Jesus said to the disciples simply, follow me, and they did it. He doesn't have to convince them. He doesn't have these elaborate arguments for why. Or, as we saw last week, he just speaks to the, to the demon, be silent, go, and it does. Jesus is God and the world bends to his will no matter, with no elaborate effort on his part. This is his power and his authority. Now, this is kind of an aside with this story, but Mark, the writer of this gospel, he's actually a companion to Simon, who's later named, or who's named by Jesus Peter. So sometimes you hear Simon Peter, things like that. And what I love from this passage is it has all these like little personal sort of touches on it. And you get the impression that uh, Mark, as he's learning these stories from Peter, he's, he's just falling in love with these stories and, and, and he wants to include this particular story uh, from Peter's life. It's as if you can hear Peter telling Mark, he healed so many people on that day. In fact, he healed my own wife's mother. She was in bed with a fever and Jesus didn't even say anything. He just lifted out his hand and, and he lifted her up by the hand. So I wonder if, if Peter, back when he was initially called to follow Jesus, if he knew that these kinds of things were going to be happening in his life. And so here we see the beautiful impact of Jesus on the lives of the disciples. Well, Jesus doesn't just restore her health, but he restores her honor as well. You see, in the ancient world, uh, imagine kind of yourself in her shoes, what it would feel like to have all of these guests coming into your home and you're not able to take care of them. You're not able to extend that hospitality to them. In the ancient world, this would have been extremely embarrassing, just as like it would be a huge embarrassment today in the Middle East and um, many parts of the world. 
And so by healing her, Jesus gives her her honor back, her dignity. This first century Jewish matriarch is now able to take care of the guests who are in her home. And notice that Jesus doesn't command her to serve them. It's not like he, because sometimes you'll hear these awful jokes um, that some pastors make about, oh, he healed her just in time for dinner time. And that's, that's not what we're seeing here, okay? She wants to serve. She's, this is her dignity. This is her joy. In fact, that word for service in the original language is actually a really cool word. Uh, it's diakonai, diakonai. Now, this word is only used in special instances in Mark's gospel. When the angels are ministering or serving Jesus when he's in the wilderness, this is the word that's used there. It's a holy action. Or here, when, Simon's, when Simon Peter's mother-in-law is healed. Or later at, the end, of John's, or at uh, the end of Mark's gospel, when the women are serving Jesus. Or when Jesus himself is serving the disciples. So it's kind of like we're seeing this diaconite. This is a special thing. This means to minister to, to relieve pain or to supply the means of life to someone. And if the word sounds familiar, it's because it's where we get in the Anglican tradition, we get the word deacon for this. The deacon is supposed to be a servant, right? This is supposed to be someone who's a bridge between the church and the community. The deacon is someone who goes out into the community and listens to the needs of the people out there and then voices that back to the church. And that's the person who takes the voice of the church and brings that out into the community. So I wonder here in Mark's gospel if he's sort of saying... This is what it's like to serve. After you encounter Jesus, after you experience his power, then we go out and we serve others. We serve. Well, then our story continues. The sun goes down, which to the Jewish readers, that would have signified, ah, the Sabbath is over now. And so that's when the townspeople are able to come and travel to Jesus to see who this person is who just casted out a demon earlier at at the synagogue. And so who comes there? The sick, the handicapped, the oppressed. Everyone is coming to see Jesus. And Jesus does for all of these people what he did for Simon Peter's mother-in-law. It's not just her who gets to experience the washing away of this debilitating condition. It's not just her who gets to have her dignity restored. Everyone and anyone who's willing and wanting experiences the healing touch of Jesus. Now, the, there's an interesting line in here where Jesus says to the, or to the demons that he doesn't want them to speak out. And this is a particularly um, odd thing to say. You see these, these instances of Jesus shushing the demons all throughout Mark's gospel. And it's something that scholars argue about and debate about and all this sort of stuff. And it's actually going to come up again uh, later in our liturgical reading. So I'm not going to address it too heavily now. All I'm going to say here is that Jesus is silencing the demons because they know the fullness of who he is. And it's, a, it's premature to announce this already. Jesus doesn't want the cross to come too quickly. He knows that he, needs, he wants to go out and minister to the people to heal them. And he doesn't want his fame to spread too quickly. And it's only through that cross that that speculation will be fulfilled. It's only at the cross that Jesus will be fully known for who he is. So like I said, Jesus isn't using his power here to spread his fame. He's using his power to love the people. So I wonder what that day would have looked like, what that evening would have looked like back then. I mean, imagine yourself there at the house where Jesus is healing all of these people. 
All these people are coming to the door, one after another, after another, wanting to be healed, pressing into the room where Jesus is, desperately hoping that they could touch him. And then what were the disciples reacting uh, like? It's as if they're just saying, whoa, what in the world is going on now? Just standing by, marveling at what's going on. And the, people were, and the people who were healed, I'm sure, were crying and celebrating and running out through the town, leaping all of their way, celebrating, partying. And then there's Jesus himself, who on one hand had to absolutely love what was going on. and was like, yes, this is why I came to earth. But on the other hand, you have to imagine that Jesus was absolutely exhausted. Some of you in here have jobs that might remind you of this kind of activity. You know, jobs where you're ministering to people who are ill, um, maybe even like teachers, and you're dealing with young kids who can just be incessant at times. So some of you know how um, overwhelming this can possibly be. So my question to you is, what do you do to fill yourself up in those situations? What do you do to be refreshed when you're absolutely at your wit's end? Well, in our story, at some point, the evening does end. Jesus does conclude. And the text tells us that he went out to a desolate place. He goes out to a desolate place. Now this is a place that's, that word desolate, it's the same thing as like wilderness. But this is a quiet place where he's alone. Where he's able to spend some time with his father in heaven. And he's able to be restored himself. So Jesus goes to the desolate place and prays and spends time with his father. So if you were able to look at our church's values, either in our bulletin, in the two seconds that I gave you, or if you've been to our church's website and read through the values there, you'll notice that we have the value mission on there. We are a church who values mission. I know, I'm sure that every church values mission. If, if a church doesn't value mission, then they're, they're probably not going to stick around for very long. But that's also because God's spirit is present when we go out and when we serve others. And this text is such a beautiful example of what it's like to be on mission, to be serving others. But also on that list is contemplation. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, you heard me preach about uh, uh, contemplation from Psalm 126. And this is kind of a weird tension to have, right? So mission and contemplation. In fact, usually we talk about that and how, when we talk about our vision or our values, we talk about how mission without contemplation tends to lead to burnout and exhaustion, doesn't it? And some of you may be coming from churches like that, where you're like, oh my goodness, like, that's all we did, and, and you're exhausted from that. But then also contemplation without mission can lead to this self-serving sort of introspection, right? Where all it is is about self, 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 instead of actually going out and serving. So I hope that here at Restoration, we learn to live with that tension. And sometimes it might be an activity that's more on the contemplation side, or sometimes it's more on the mission side. Well, what I love about this passage, what I love about Jesus Christ, is that we see both fully present in him. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the teacher of truth, the giver of life, he's among the people, pouring himself out to them. But he's also alone in the quiet places before the Father. But unfortunately, he's interrupted, right? So Simon, who just saw his mother healed, he gets super excited. He comes back and, he's, and it says that he's searching for Jesus. This word isn't just searching. It should actually be like he's hunting or he's pursuing Jesus. He's trying to find him. This is a word that actually connotes some kind of control over something. And he says to him, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. What are you doing here? Everyone's looking for you. 
you kind of get the impression that Simon has his own plans for the day. He wants to bring Jesus back to his hometown and say, all right, let's do it again. You know, that guy I went to high school with, we need to go visit him. And like, this guy who I was in school with over here, we need to go visit him. My coworker over here, that other fisherman, we need to go over here. And he, wants, he has all these other people that he wants to introduce to Jesus. But Jesus won't be controlled. Jesus won't be controlled. Jesus doesn't succumb to, G- to Simon's demand. And instead, and you get the impression that's implied here that he gained this insight in the depths of his prayer. But Jesus says, no, I need to stick to my mission. Sorry, Simon, we can't just go only in your town. We need to go out throughout the entire region of Galilee, from town to town, going into the synagogues and teaching there. So Jesus won't be controlled. So do you see here in this passage how Jesus uses his power? Totally different from other stories and especially of other gods in the ancient world of how they use their power. No, Jesus is using his power not by robbing banks, not by seducing women, not by spreading his own fame. He serves the individual, but he also serves the entire city and he serves the entire region. He's just pouring himself out and out and out. And when he's exhausted, he goes and he finds that place of restoration. And he prays to the Father. So not only is this his mission, or not only is this mission consistent with Jesus, but this is consistent with the entire heart of God as it's displayed in the scriptures. This has been the Lord's plan all along. If you were listening carefully to the Old Testament passages, the passage and the Psalms that we read, this is the same Lord God at work. In fact, I'd like to reread some of this passage and think about the story from Mark as I'm reading these verses. You don't need to follow around. I'm going to skip around a little bit. Um, So starting at verse 21 of Isaiah. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who bring, and so here we get the picture of God being all-powerful. Everything is in his control. But yet this God, he brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. All of those princes and powers of darkness are cast out. They are nothing before the Lord. And then jumping down, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even though youths shall grow weary and young men shall fall exhausted, They who wait on the Lord, they who seek him in the quiet place, shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up on wings like eagles. Or even from our reading from Psalm 147, the Lord builds up to Jerusalem. He is in power there. He he has gathered his people, established Jerusalem, and yet he gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. You know, one of the things that kind of pushes my buttons is when People say that the God of Old Testament is angry, and, and a, just, which we, we do see examples of his anger in the Old Testament. But he is, a, he is a gracious God who seeks after the outcast. He heals the oppressed. He brings liberty to the oppressed and sets the prisoner free. But even that wasn't enough. He wanted to come even closer to his people. He wants to walk among them, to see them face to face, to reach out his hand, hand and touch them and lift them up. And he does this by entering into the world as Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. So as you know, Lent is just around the corner. Right? Maybe you don't know that. Lent is just around the corner. It's in two weeks. Oh my goodness. 
Um, so Lent is a time in the church calendar. This is a season that, that the uh, church has been celebrating nearly since the beginning. Uh, it's a time where Christians examine themselves, when they quiet themselves, when they look for sin in their own lives and things that they're struggling with. And this is in preparation for Easter. So Lent is 40 days leading up to um, Easter, in which we have that joyous celebration, which we're going to have some announcements about this later. I'm really excited for you guys to hear about this. So sometimes during Lent, people give up stuff, like chocolate or alcohol or maybe a meal during the day or something like that. So I'm, someone just shook their, their head. I'm not going to point out that person. But <laughs> so it's like, I'm not doing that. But sometimes people also take on things. They, they um, take other things into their practices as well. In fact, Molly's going to share some stuff during our announcements about that. But I want you to ask the Lord during this time, is what does the Lord want to show you during Lent this year? What does the Lord want to show you during Lent? How does he want to speak to you? And I love this passage that we looked at from Mark because it actually has some insights into this. I think it's very timely to look at this passage from Lent, or this passage in context of Lent just around the corner. Where do you see yourself in this passage? We just read through it. We just talked about some of the various characters in it. Where do you see yourself in this passage? Maybe you're Simon's mother-in-law, wanting alleviation from some kind of sickness or suffering. Maybe you want the Lord to restore your joy or your dignity back to you. Maybe you're Simon, who's hunting after Jesus, who's pursuing after Jesus, who has an agenda for Jesus, and, and you just have these big dreams for Jesus. Bring those to him. Let him talk to you about those. Or maybe you see yourself as the exhausted Jesus and Maybe you're in a season of pouring yourself out to others. And day after day, it just seems like one more exhaustion after the other. And you need some time alone with your Father in heaven to be refocused, to be refreshed, restored. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what Lent is for. It's a time for you to quiet yourself and be restored by God. And this isn't the God who flaunts his, his, his power left and right. He doesn't use it for his own means. No, he uses his power for you. He pours himself out for you out of love and service. He wants to be with you. So ask yourself as we approach Lent, how can you use this as a time to grow closer to the Lord? What does he have for you this season? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.